Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. The U.S. Supreme Court wrapped up its first arguments of the year on Wednesday, but notably, the justices did not issue any opinions in argued cases. Joining us later to talk about the high court's historically slow start is Adam Feldman, the creator of the website Empirical SCOTUS, which analyzes data related to the court. But first, we did get something from the justices. On Wednesday, we got an order in that New York gun case. Greg, can you remind us what this case is about? Yeah, so this was a follow-on to that big Supreme Court decision last year where they said that uh, people have a constitutional right to carry a handgun in public and saying that states generally have to allow people to get licenses to, to do so. And in response to that decision, which struck down a New York law, New York passed a new law. And what it did is it, among other things, carved out a whole lot of places where even if you have a concealed carry license, you can't carry a weapon. These are so-called sensitive locations. And New York under this law had, had a lot of them, parks, buses, Times Square, a store where somebody uh, didn't affirmatively consent that you could bring a, a weapon in there. Gun rights advocates, advocates are challenging this law. Uh, The case is in litigation at the lower courts, and the gun rights advocates ask the Supreme Court to block the law while the litigation is going forward. And then so the order that we got uh, declined to do that, and it was unanimous, but we did get a sort of statement from two of the justices. What did Justice Alito and Thomas want us to know? Yeah, unanimous, at least in the sense that we didn't have any public dissent. So Justice Alito and Justice Thomas uh, cast some doubt on the constitutionality of this new law, at least in their minds. They said that the uh, law creates a number of, presents a number of novel and serious questions under both the First and Second Amendments. But they said, we're going to go along with the court's decision not to uh, vacate the, the stay issued by the Second Circuit because what we're doing here, as we understand it, is just letting the Second Circuit uh, apply its own procedures. Uh, it's going to hear an appeal. We expect the appeal to be handled expeditiously. And uh, if the the gun rights advocates advocates need to come back to, to the court, this doesn't prevent them from, from doing that. Right. The statement actually says applicants should not be deterred by today's order from again seeking relief if the Second Circuit does not, within a reasonable time, provide an explanation. So uh, this case is coming back, I guess. Uh, Any idea when that might happen? Well, as I suggested, Alito did suggest that he expects the Second Circuit to expedite the appeal. Now, there's a little back and forth between the parties as to whether or not the Second Circuit has already done that. But, uh, you know, we'll probably get a a Second Circuit decision in this case in a matter of at least a few months. It'll be too late for this term, but I would anticipate that one way or another we're going to see this back at the Supreme Court next term. Now, whether the court wants to take it up is a different matter. Uh, you know, there might be some benefit. Some of them might see some benefit in letting the matter percolate a little bit. Other states have similar laws that they've enacted. New Jersey has one that uh, is in litigation as well. It obviously depends on what the Second Circuit does. As as I mentioned, there are a lot of different provisions in this law. So 
Uh, it's certainly possible the Second Circuit will uphold some of them and strike down some of them. And, you know, what exactly the, the, the appeals court does may determine whether how much appetite there is at the Supreme Court. Hmm. Well, that will be, um, as you say, likely for next term. Let's take a closer look at what's happening at the court this term with our guest, Adam Feldman. And here he is. Joining us to chat about the Supreme Court's historically slow start is Adam Feldman, the creator of Empirical SCOTUS, who wrote about the um, historically slow start. So wondering if you could um, just sort of tell our listeners what you meant when you when you wrote that. So the uh, the release of opinions this term is is uh, frighteningly slow. Um, in the past, it usually takes uh, it has taken the court around a, a month to two months to release its first opinion. The longest it's taken is really two months. And now we're looking at a minimum of just over 100 days to release its first opinion. So uh, we're almost looking at a month longer than it's ever taken the court historically to uh, release an opinion. And when you say first opinion, you're not just talking about argued cases. You're also talking about those procuriums we sometimes get where they resolve a cert petition without hearing arguments, right? Yeah, so typically the uh, Supreme Court releases these uh, unargued cases, uh, the opinions from them, uh, before they release opinions from argued cases. So really, uh, we're seeing, if we include those, an even greater disjuncture between uh, this term and any term uh, in the court's history. So we know the reason behind the slow start, because the justices have told us, right? No, they don't tell us anything. So all we can do is just (laughs) guess. What's going on, Adam? There, there are a few possibilities. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I am only speculating here, but um, you know, I think this comes down to three things. Uh, the first being that the court has been moving slower over time. So, if we look at the uh, the trend um, over the last you know, decade or two, the court's been taking longer to release its its first opinion of the term. And uh, it's also been moving slower in general. So if we look at the time between argued cases and when they're releasing their decisions on average, it's taking a longer period of time. And the court's dealing with fewer cases. So the caseload um, in argued cases is, is diminishing. So I think all these things together uh, kind of point in a trend direction that the court's moving slower. Um, but I think you add to that the extreme uh, kind of ideological disjuncture between the uh, conservatives and the liberals on the court. And uh, there's just more room for separate opinions and separate opinions uh, almost always slow the process of releasing opinions down because the majority has to respond to the dissent, the dissent has to respond to the majority, and this can lead to uh, some longer uh, periods of time to write the opinions. I think thirdly, uh, there's kind of an after effect from the leak of the Dobbs opinion. And, uh, you know, the possibility there is that the justices are holding their opinions a little uh, bit more tightly to their chests. And so if they're not going to share the opinions with the other justices as, as quickly until they're really sure that they're ready uh, for release, then this could also slow things down even further. There, there's a lot in there, Adam. Let me ask about one aspect of it. When, when you talk about more separate opinions, which, of course, can be concurrences, but but also dissents. Um, are we, you know, the justices always like to tout how many unanimous opinions they have, you know, a sign that they're not really as divided as some of us in the press like to like to say they are. It, recognizing it's early, um, does it seem likely we are moving in, into a world where we're going to have fewer unanimous opinions? Yes, uh, but I'll, I'll put a caveat there. 
So um, we've seen fewer unanimous opinions. Last term was the first term that I've ever seen where there was more, there were more 6-3 opinions than there were unanimous opinions. So that's very idiosyncratic. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, you know, we've seen a trend away from unanimous opinions, but there still are about a third of the, or there were a third of the opinions last term that were unanimous. So uh, there's a, a very good likelihood that we're going to see unanimous opinions. And I think that's why it's even more surprising that it's taken them so long to release even a unanimous opinion, because more than likely we're going to see one or more of those at the uh, at the outset of when they release their opinions this term. I wonder, too, um, you know, if sort of the personalities on the court have something to do with, you know, the opinions taking longer, right? Most notably, Justice Ginsburg was very swift with getting out her opinions, sort of prided herself on, you know, working quickly and getting out the first opinion. So is there anyone like that left on the court? If we look at the the time in terms of releasing the first opinion, uh, the justice behind Justice Ginsburg in recent years was Justice Sotomayor. Um, And I think part of the reason that we're seeing uh, the more liberal justices release the first opinion is because with a minority of justices, they need some consensus from the other side. Uh, And so we, uh, you know, that the liberal justices tend to have opinions, uh, majority opinions with fewer dissents in them. So typically we would expect to see Justice Sotomayor release something earlier than they have already this term. Um, That that would be still slower than Justice Ginsburg released. And she uh, had, you know, kind of lightning speed and getting that first opinion out in past terms. But I'd still expect to see something from Sotomayor uh, prior to January. One other trend we've seen in recent years is that the court has fewer and fewer cases. Where where are we now with this term relative to previous terms? What and, and you know as we head into January, which is kind of the last chance to grant cases for for the current term, where do you think we're going to end up? I think we're going to end up somewhere similar to where we have been in the last few years. We're um, right in the uh, in the ballpark of of where we have been. So just under 60 uh, argued cases or cases slated for total argument. And, uh, and, and the court's been uh, been hearing around 60 to 70 cases for the last few terms. So while the uh, number of uh, argued cases is extremely diminished from where it was in the 80s and 90s, um, we're, we're at a pace where if they grant a few more cases for argument this term, then they're right about where they have been in the last few years. Right. Greg and I were chatting um, before you came on about uh, this week. There's there's just a ton of cases that have been relisted, which um, is sort of the, the indicator that, you know, the justices are thinking about granting a case. And it seems like if they were to grant all of those, we'd be sort of in the, at a high watermark um, for what we've been seeing. Also, if they granted all of those, Kimberly and I wouldn't be ready for that. <laughs> I've got yeah, another you know, day, Greg. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of potential there. Usually, they'll grant a few of these these cases that are uh, relisted, um, not necessarily all of them, but only a few are really needed to uh, to get back up to where they have been in, in previous terms. So we talked about the numbers. I wonder if you if you have any thoughts about why it is that the court is hearing um, you know fewer cases than it has even over you know the past decade. It was you know, we were hearing more cases. Now I can't even think of the last time we had a, a what I would consider to be a full argument calendar for a sitting. So I think there's a, a kind of path dependence that's happened. When the court has taken fewer cases in the past, uh, generally, and this is over several decades, they don't bump back to where they were previous to that. 
So uh, as they drop cases, the expectation isn't necessarily that they're going to go back up. It's it's almost like gas prices, really. Um, you know, when when they drop or when they when they go up, um, they're not likely to come back down to where they were before. Um, they kind of hit a new floor, and I think that's what happens with the Supreme Court's uh, opinions. They they get comfortable um, hearing fewer argued cases, and so there's just not an expectation that they're going to ever, uh, or at least in the near future, bounce up to where they have been in the past. In terms of the the emergency or or shadow docket this term, do you happen to know whether we have fewer shadow docket cases so far uh, and shadow docket orders than we've had in previous terms? I think we're we're right about where we have been. the The times when there's been an uptick are uh, in in recent years when there's something uh, externally that's that's leading to them, some kind of event. So mm-hmm. um, during the elections, there were a lot of shadow docket cases. Um, to deal and, and the presidential elections I'm referring to in particular, uh, a lot of shadow docket cases dealing with that on an emergency basis because they needed to have an expedited decision in those. We saw the same thing with uh, with COVID when there were uh, COVID restrictions and um, the court responded to those very quickly. Since we don't have those, we're seeing a few uh, cases so far this term that are decided on uh, the shadow docket, but not um, a uh, disproportional number um, than we have seen in the past. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. That was really helpful. Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. So, Kimberly, in addition to awaiting the the court's first opinion, we're going to have some arguments next week. Why don't you give us a sneak peek at what the court's going to be hearing? Right. We will be having three arguments because Monday is, of course, a holiday. So first up for the justices is an immigration case, Santos Zakaria versus Garland. So Santos Zakaria is a transgender woman from Guatemala. She is attempting to avoid deportation, but the immigration court ruled against her. Um, She brought her claims in federal court, but the court there dismissed the case because it said that she failed to exhaust all of her administrative remedies. So the Fifth Circuit agreed and said that Santos Zakaria needed to file a motion to reconsider with the Board of Immigration Appeals before she could bring her case in federal court. And that's the dispute that the justices are going to hear. It's actually the latest in a line of cases trying to remedy what is called drive-by jurisdictional rulings. That is, um, looking back to a time when the court sort of used the term jurisdictional a bit more loosely than it does today. And so there have been a number of cases over the past several terms where the courts tried to sort out what, what really are jurisdictional rules that really deprive courts of hearing these cases at all and what's a mere, quote, claims processing rule which has some more flexibility. I actually really, really love um, this line of cases. I, that, I just wanted to give you that little level of nerdity. Um, <laughs> and you're admitting that publicly. <laughs> I, you know, and I am not alone. This used to be Justice Ginsburg's hobby horse. So um, I, I'm fine sitting in her company. All right. So that's case number one. Uh, the next case is uh, another topic that the justices seem to love, and that's whether foreign nationals and their instrumentalities can be sued in U.S. courts. This one involves uh, criminal violations. The case here involves a Turkish bank that prosecutors say was used to bypass international sanctions against Iran. The parties here are taking two different extreme positions. The bank says foreign entities can never be prosecuted for criminal violations, and 
and the U.S. says they always can. Um, there's likely some middle ground for the justices, but they've been pretty protective of foreign defendants in the civil context. So we'll see if the criminal element changes that. And then last but not least is Perez versus Sturgeon Public Schools. And similar to the immigration case, this is a question about what steps parties have to take before they can bring cases in federal court. Uh, This one comes up in the context of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which protects the rights of disabled students. So that's it uh, for January. And then the justices are going to take off another month um, before heading back for some pretty big cases in February. And I want this gig. (laughs) <laughs> where you take off a month, you come back for a couple weeks, and then you take off another month. That would be, where do I apply? And you haven't even produced an opinion for the past four months. <laughs> this sounds very good. Well, we will be back um, before the justices with a deep dive, look at some of the cases to be argued and then have been argued. But until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists, covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.